Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Rune and Andreas, co-founders and general partners of Ugly Duckling Ventures, a VC firm that invests in Nordic companies at the pre-seed, seed and early stages. They're currently raising their first fund and about to announce their closing. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Andreas Arun, welcome to the European VC. It's super nice to have you. Let me kick things off with a question that I love asking. Why the fuck are you guys called Ugly Duckling Ventures? Is it because you guys consider yourselves to not be that attractive or is there another story? Thank you for having us, David. And uh, A, we are a couple of ugly ducklings. We are first time fund <laughs> managers. But when we came up with the name, we knew we wanted something that had a little bit of a Danish touch. And H.C. Uh, Anderson wrote a famous story about an ugly duckling. We also knew that we wanted to work with early stage companies. So at the seed stage and pre-seed stage, and we knew that we wanted to go and work with companies and try to find the hidden gems that other VCs were missing out on. So that was how Ugly Duckling name came about. So we actually, well, I don't know when Andreas from ABC met you guys, but I actually met you guys what a while back when you were just in the beginning of this journey or, well, much less mature than today. And you guys have been through interesting times, <laughs> raising your first fund. And definitely not easy, but interesting. So not that I want you guys to spill all the dirty little secrets, but I think you went through some interesting experiences for other emerging GPs out there across Europe. I'd love to hear kind of the quick rundown of how the last couple of months have been, maybe a year even, on the fundraising side, on setting up the fund. I think there's so much to be, to be extracted there in terms of learnings and insights. Yeah, I mean, I think we could speak the whole full half hour about that because it, it has been indeed a journey when we kicked off just over a year ago. Everyone was like, hey, that's the perfect time to start a fund. And then three months went by and everyone was like, damn, you guys chose the worst time of the last 10 years to, to raise a fund. And I think that's, that's kind of the, the headline for our fundraising journey. But we started off in our sort of, you could say, private network, friends and family, ex-tech entrepreneurs with one exit, raised these tickets of 100k euros to 200k euros for LP. That went pretty well. We raised just about 5 million euros pretty quickly, beginning of 21. Did a first close with that capital. And then, I mean, the rest is history. You could say Putin decided to invade Ukraine. The, the macro went upside down, more or less, and almost actually true. We, we raised zero euros the next six months. The, the market for, you could say, private, say, business angels or private investors completely froze. And giving advice, which I think was also your question, I think, I mean, we had to stay agile in our mindset and not be locked into this idea that we that we had to stick with the, the angels and the private investors and say, like, do we have a, a product that might actually also be a fit for the family offices? Because in, anyone can read the statistics. The best vintages are the ones that come on the backside of a crisis. And at least it's, I don't know if it's a crisis, but it's at least a pretty abrupt new cycle that we're in. 
And the ones that truly understand them, that has the capital to act on that, is the family offices. They think generational. They think in preserving uh, funds and, and, and fortunes so they can lean in. And so we had to shift focus completely. And that's what we succeeded with now, uh, raising funds from family offices. I'd love to ask how you would juxtapose the raising from the tech ecosystem and, and exited founders and so on to then pivoting to having to tell your story and, and, and craft your narrative around family offices because it's two completely different stories, right? It has been a uh, steep learning curve. I think when we started taking our first meetings with the family offices, we were pretty naive when they all told us, hey, we don't invest in the first-time fund managers, come, but we, like, we would like, like to meet you and start building a relationship. And we thought that was going to be, like that was more or less a law And then we found out that was just a, a way of trying to uh, set the scene before the meeting and uh, lower expectations. And then we also realized that the less we tried to sell anything, the more interested they became. And uh, we had a uh, portfolio that we already had started investing into, and we could show some decent traction in that portfolio. We could show that we knew how to do uh, good reporting. And then I think that they just really also bought into that we are, at least from a fund manager perspective, still young. We have uh, some mileage left in the in the tank. And uh, they, like the family offices that are backing us now, we have a strong notion that they are looking into a longer journey. So they also see someone that can grow and they were asking questions about, okay, so When are you going to go to market with fund two and fund three? And what are the sizes of those funds going to be? And we had less questions about that from the private investors. So they just have a much longer view and uh, a much longer way to invest into funds. You guys have a style that's more equal to the UBC style in the sense that you're sitting here in, uh, I don't know if you wear sweatpants, but at least sweatshirts. Uh, and that is a style that works incredibly well with the tech ecosystem, right? Because it's it's very close to heart or close to, to how we all act. Um, whereas in the family office world, you tend to wear a suit and suit and tie <laughs> rather. And I'm curious to hear, did you see any division in style and how you worked with people? Because also Ockley Duckling, right? That's that's a funny brand, right? Who comes up with that name, right? I'm curious to hear how, how that whole story played out. I think uh, two guys in sweatshirts that insist wearing sweatshirts, even when they have a meeting with a family office, come up with that name. I mean, we're young, at least in, uh, in many, maybe in fun terms, but we're also old enough to know who we are uh, and we want to be true to who we are, no matter who we meet. We have a valued investor in our fund, which we have very, very open conversations with. He wears a suit every day. Every time I meet him, he's just like, oh, you're still not old enough to wear a suit. So like, you're still too old to wear the clothes that the startups wear, which makes them find me relatable. And I think the whole business needs to get their head around the fact that The way we make money as a fund is to have good deal flow and be relatable with the, with the startups. Of course, we need to speak the language and we need to be professional and we need to understand what the LPs need from us. But where the magic happens and where we differentiate is, say, downstream or whatever you want to call it, towards the startups. And as you said, at large, at least, they can more relate to a, a sweatshirt, which coincidentally is what we feel more comfortable wearing. And uh, if I might just add, we have had no complaints about how we dress from the family offices. <laughs> I actually think that the majority, if not all of the family offices that we have met with, to give them credit, I think they are very, very good at spotting if, if someone is authentic. 
And they also, they don't want you to wear anything. But that being said, like I do own a shirt. Andreas owns a same, like one. I've seen at least one uh, as well. And, uh, and at his wedding. <laughs> we, we are also comfortable wearing a shirt, but we're not like, uh, I, I don't imagine us having a workday where we're in suits or anything like that. That's not who we are. Uh, and I'm putting it like this because I, of course, I'm trying to tease out this whole nuance of bridging tech to the normal world <laughs> because we are a bit in our own little little world and then we show up as a fam- at a family office that's primarily doing uh, private equity deals and real estate and that kind of thing and then how do you tell this story about well there's also this weird world of founders and now I'll tell you how that works because I you know it's just a different story that's needed yeah I mean it's not I mean we only have this one year of, of experience and less with dealing directly with family offices but and this is an obvious point but Family offices are also different. And I'm sure that there are some family offices where they would not necessarily judge on because we're not wearing a suit. Now we're using that as a very uh, big artifact, but let's just uh, roll with it. And you could say it's, the, it's the, only simple, right? And I hope our audience knows that it's as simple of what we're talking about. Yeah, 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 exactly. But, and for sure, at least you could say now that the two big family offices that have trusted us now can relate to it. And I think with some of the, of course, with some family offices, they're professionally run. There's a CEO and a chief investment officer and so on employed. And, and for some, the person behind the, the fortune is also still active. And I would say, not speaking about necessarily the family offices we've been with, but I think if you made yourself a billion euros, I think you wear whatever the fuck you want. And that's usually more sweatshirt than a, than a suit, I think. So yeah. in that sense, it's also just people behind it. And I'm curious, so now we know that you started and really did first close with tech entrepreneurs as your backers, and then you've grown into now have family offices as really the backers of the second close or second and third close. Now you're running up against the final close. Are you going to continue with the family offices or are you also planning to add in the fund of funds and the EIF and uh, the Danish growth fund and so on? How, how do you think about the different players and how they will fit into your LP base? And race. We are in talks both with, I mean, we only, we have uh, about a quarter left of fundraising period. Then we have to close the fund. There's a hard deadline. Also, there's a, you can't keep fundraising. You also start, have to shift your focus completely towards the, the market. And I think in that sense, that eliminates some of the players that you just mentioned there that has longer decision cycles. We think we're going to raise the last 4 million euros from a combination of family offers and private investors. We felt clearly after New Year's that the market has has somewhat come back. Uh, we've seen also private investors starting joining in on the tickets of that 100 to 200,000 euros again, which was didn't ha- just didn't happen in Q2, Q3, large part of Q4 as well. So we're gonna we're gonna raise it from a combination. We're not gonna raise from the Danish Growth Fund. The decision cycle is is long from from their part, and I think that they are used to being sort of in the first close. Of a fund, they're used to being part of the cornerstone team that sets the terms, and obviously our cornerstone terms are set now. And that's not, from what I can read, it's not their modus to adopt cornerstone terms. They like to set them. So maybe in fund two, we spoke a lot about FOs as you know the kind of LP profile. Well, I wouldn't say of choice, but the one that you've spoken the most about—that's for sure. So I'd love, I'd love to ask you to go through, you know, what is your focus, stage, you know, sectors, whatnot. But then also kind of share with us, what are the details of that that you felt resonated best or most with family offices that ended up committing? Because I think that is also extremely insightful. 
We are a focused seed or early stage fund, you could say. And uh, we have a model that makes that work uh, from a mathematical point of view. So our fund one is only going to invest into 15 companies in total. And um, we have a very heavy follow-up thesis. So we are basically going to deploy 25% of the fund for the initial tickets or the initial investments. And then we are reserving 75% of the fund for leading larger rounds later and maybe defending in an A round. And that, and that basically is why we think we can uh, still have success as a focused early stage fund. So, of course, we do some due diligence before placing our initial ticket, but a large part of our uh, due diligence is actually working with the founders for a year before making up our minds whether or not to commit for our fund the big ticket in uh, leading a seed round. So uh, you were asking for a quick rundown. Our mandate is to invest into Nordic companies. Out of the nine companies that we have already invested into, eight of them are from Denmark. One is from Norway. And uh, it just sort of, um, Denmark is where we have our edge. It's where we get the, the best deals. It's where the founders, they come to us early. Whereas we still see a lot of the deal flow that we're getting from other Nordic countries seems to be the ones that have gotten no in their first circles wherever they live before they find us on some list. So our deal flow is still way stronger in Denmark uh, compared to the rest yeah. of the Nordic region. I have a question there because it's, it's an awfully interesting topic. <laughs> Portfolio model. And, you know, the, the beautiful thing about models is that they're always fucking wrong. Right? But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people, you know, and, and some really well-respected investors globally, right? arguing for little reserves, arguing for that it's all about, you know, what really makes a difference is if you get into that one outlier in your portfolio. It doesn't really matter if you have follow-ons. On the other hand, we have many firms that are quite aggressive in their in their reserves for follow-ons. And I even remember that late last year, we were on, a, on an LP roundtable talking about this. And uh, I think it was uh, the GP from Credo, Andre, I think. He, he talked a bit about this where neither one of them is really true. It depends a lot of, of the assumptions. So rather than asking you to kind of defend the position, I would ask the same question very differently, which is what are the underlying assumptions that you guys are doing that are leading you to have this strategy, right? And then whether we believe in those assumptions or not, well, every, every single listener can decide, but I think it's interesting to focus on what those assumptions are. And, and actually, I think originally you, you also asked the question, how does that fit with our LP base? And naturally, the LPs that buy into this, they, A, I think they buy into the fact that you can somewhat affect the, say, the, the venture math behind deals. At least you can have an, an effect as an active uh, investor. And B, I think I'd like to quote one of our LPs that we, we can't mention him by name, but he's a, he's a partner in, in one of the leading PE firms in, in Copenhagen. And he said, it's kind of like you're the PE of VCs because we do adopt some of the, of the models and the portfolio models of PE. We are way more leaning towards the VC than a PE if I would do a sort of a level between the, the two. But we do take some of that uh, learning and some of that inspiration of saying like, so we're focused fund, focused early stage fund of 15 and when we do the follow-ups, naturally, we don't do those spread evenly across the 15. That's going to be in the whatever uh, four to six winners, quote-unquote, in the portfolio. And then actually, that's not too far off from a standard PE fund, having four to six uh, bets that you, that you have there. And all we're saying is that the three to four X, we're all 
hoping and working towards returning, there's several ways of getting there. And at least when we look at the data, then the actual DPI paid back doesn't necessarily differ too much from the best Uh, PE funds to the best uh, VC funds. Of course, you have outliers in, in VC that can return the whatever 12x, 20x in the extreme cases, which you probably rarely see in a PE fund. But we have adopted this somewhat middle ground in our portfolio construct that you will have more, say, small in terms of multiple winners than just the one outlier. But And then hopefully with more certainty. Am I right in saying that that has fallen very well with many LPs that you've spoken to? Yes, yes. But it's not only because they want to believe it. I also think that uh, with, especially with some of the family offices that we're talking to, I think it fits their way of thinking very well. And I think they also are opportunities for co-invest or even leading rounds later when they invest into funds such as ours. But it also influences the type of companies that we are willing to invest into Because I was exactly we, just about to ask about that. So tell us, tell us how this impacts your pick of companies. So we basically say that we want to, like, we like to invest into the, uh, like the layer just below the consensus layer of other VCs. And that means that uh, if, if you take an example, well, our biggest investment to date is in a uh, Danish uh, company called Upri, where we co-led a uh, large seed round with the uh, Vixt Fund the Danish growth fund, uh, their venture arm last year. And they were basically, they were getting all the meetings with the VCs, but they were, they, they just had a history that was a little rocky. They had a syndicate of angel investors in early, then hit rock bottom and then bootstrapped from there on. So if you look at them in a spreadsheet compared to all other deals, they don't check out. But if you have the time and you dedicate the resources to basically work with them and try to find out what's going on, and we were looking at the data from the last two years, and that was a pretty good case, and we knew that they were just rock solid. They were making money. They were actually running a profitable business with a decent growth, but not a venture growth. And we went in, and uh, Andreas is now the, uh, the chairperson on that company, and uh, that is... Our, now we're now we're at a now we're at a the hundred percent benchmark growth year on year and it's it's not it's nothing to do with I mean of course we like to think that we have have an effect and we do but it's I think we just saw that very little had to be changed in that company but it's just not the normal way to to run a venture investment things has to be more straightforward and that's when you're chasing the hundred x of course it has to be like that it makes complete sense but but for us at least in the follow up investment ten x can be good. And, and that's a different type of company. Yeah, that investment strategy is not the type of strategy that I, I like the most myself. You know, I, I and that's just because my my nature is more venture. <laughs> I'm, I'm a very all or nothing kind of guy, and that goes for everything. It's when I buy meat, I buy too much. When I cook, I cook too much. And when I watch films, I watch films all night. <laughs> and same thing when we do investments, right? But 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 I really see that the market lacks this type of player in most places, right? Because you're seeing a lot of great fund companies that are struggling to get funded because they don't fit the VC model, but angels have kind of tapped out and private equity don't want to touch it because it's too, still too young. The founders are too young. What's all this tech stuff? Technology is not completely there yet, blah, 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 all that stuff. I think in most markets, there is really room for this type of player. It's not my type of player typically, <laughs> but I, I definitely see the need in, in most markets. And you're absolutely right. When we sit and evaluate our companies, and obviously not going to spill the beans here, but we 
we have ideas in all of our portfolio whether I mean we th- we think we're going to have a above normal exit rate to private equity firms uh, compared to other venture funds because we also invest in companies that can be more interesting and cash generating than your typical VC I think. Yeah, uh, but you're but you're touching on one of my favorite topics. Actually, I do somewhat agree with Andreas. But one of my favorite topics, especially when talking to emerging and even aspiring GPs, is how much the exit strategy, right, is being weighed into the investment strategy. Because often I see it in, like as an afterthought, <laughs> right. And what you said for me means a lot in the sense that for me it means it's quite central in your own rationale and. We can discuss for hours if it is for Andreas or not, but what is a fact is, well, it is for some investors, <laughs> right? And that's what matters for you guys as, as you're building a firm. I mean, the, the statistic doesn't lie. The, one, some of the most, if not the vast majority of, of successful funds in the last 10, 12 years have been the, say, more power law focused funds. Yeah. A, we don't feel that we are better stock pickers, if you can call it that, than, than, than other funds. We think we have our edge in what we can do, meaning on ground. In, in these more, I mean, again, they're not conservative companies. They are growth companies. They are VC-style companies. They're just on the conservative side. So you create the example I gave you before, and I am probably going to spill the beans now. But, uh, <laughs> but when we had our initial investment, we were the only VC in town who were interested. But when we did the follow-up investment, they had like there was competing term sheets. So something happened in that period of time, and someone else than us thought that they were a venture case. Oh, there's actually another topic that you kind of I think again the original question was like how does it sit with our LP base? We like to think, and we present ourselves as you can say opportunistic deal makers. So we have a mandate also about thinking about secondaries. In fact, in the seed round already of UPRI, we had a secondary element for the purpose of cleaning the cap table, which I think is also somewhat out of the ordinary to think in secondaries or like that. We just thought, hey, we clean the cap table, tidy it up, not clean it, but we tidied up the cap table and we had a better balanced price. And we can think in warrants too. We can think in like, so I think there's a respect from... Now I'm generalizing here, but like say family offices about making a good deal. It's just plain old, I don't know what the correct word is. Like what is Kripmanscape in English? It's deal making. Right? Yeah, deal making or hackling or, you know, the, yeah, the no, good no, no, results no. that can also come from hackling on price and everything. No, exactly. no, but absolutely. And, and that's also why I asked, I guess this sits quite well with the LPs, right? Because if there's anything that a good, solid, rooted in the ground, as we say, right, kind of family office type guy, if there's anything he hates, it's some fresh dude coming in who've built a billion dollar company and now wants to do a VC fund where he's going to spray and pray in his views, right? Spray and pray 30, 40 investments, 100 million, kind of like that into guys he thinks are cool. And then hopefully it'll be an overnight success, right? That is what he, that is what that type of guy will often look at VC as. Yeah, I've been there myself, right? And I've seen the look from these guys when they think, what the fuck, are you crazy? No, but seriously, though, there is an effect, or I imagine that there is also on the term side, because when you are when you have a more concentrated portfolio and you are taking bets where you also see that there's stuff that we need to do in this company, or we foresee that there's probably stuff we're going to need to do, it's a bit more hands-on rather than hands-off. And... Thus, you might also be more interested in controlling terms and that kind of thing. Can you uh, put a few words to that? 
to put it simple, we liked with our initial ticket to go in on something that resembles founder terms because we think it's a small investment and we don't really think that we're in a place to dictate terms that hard. I mean, we need some standard venture terms to sort of be able to promise what we promise to our LPs so that they can get their money back, good or bad, after eight to 10 years. That's the term we need in. So where we where we tighten the screw a little bit is obviously in, in the follow-up round. I mean, we did co-investments already uh, with other uh, VC funds, uh, not going to necessarily name them, although they're probably not that hard to find out. But we are still on the friendly side of that. Of course, we need some, again, to, to be able to control that. I mean, you have this term, which I think is someone overlooked. And I don't know, if, I think I, I've not, not coined it myself at all, which I think is called the venture gap, where you kind of have this thing where, say, a company is worth 20 million euros. The, let's say a founder owns 60% of that. If they sell that company, they're made. I mean, and they're... Uh, their children and their children's children are made. But for a venture fund, that can be a pretty bad exit because it's maybe only a one and a half X or two X. And to control or mitigate that, we have some terms in place. But on the other side, we take that responsibility of not widening that venture gap by saying like, hey, we are active in helping the founders get, say, one million in secondaries or two million in secondaries. So we mitigate that venture gap I think that's some of the responsibilities we are very aware of in, in building the, the company big. So we are taking the, the normal uh, 1x non-participating league pref. We do have minority rights. We do have drag-alongs if shit hits the fan. But we're not. I think our term sheet is quite similar to what you would find in normal, say, VC funds. Yeah. Now, that's interesting because I definitely know of funds with a more concentrated portfolio at, that are doing the type of deals where you'd say that we're, we're kind of taking the deals that the VCs didn't or the VCs don't know how to deal with or they're just not yet VC, right? Where they are leaning towards more private equity type terms. But cool to hear that you're not. David, I'll let you take us to the quick fire. Thanks a million, guys. Awesome, guys. I love that we end the episode. And I think the understanding of your name is much clearer to anyone that paid attention to the whole, whole episode, like the focus on the ugly ducklings. It makes a lot of sense. Guys, we always end the episodes with the quick fire round when we ask quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. I will alternate between you. And then I'll ask the second one to comment if you want. Are you guys ready for this? Do it. Yes. <laughs> Andreas, let's start with you. What areas, technologies, or sectors excite you the most that other people around you don't really feel that excited about? There's so many VCs that you'll probably find one or two that are excited about it about, uh, as well. But uh, but we do like the combination of hardware and software. Our biggest investment in Upri, they do a simple hardware component, but with a strong SaaS component as well. And we just see the effects that has, positive effect that has on churn. So we do like hardware in combination with software. Rune, I come from a background of B2B SaaS, and um, I think that uh, Andreas and I, we have a lot to add in that space as well. And when I think about some of the deals that we're currently looking at going into as well, on a very broad plate, you can say B2B SaaS is going to play a big portion of our remaining tickets. Moving on to the second question, Rune, what are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising as well? One of my top tips is keep the communication with your LPs, especially if you already have some commitments, keep the communication open, the channels open, and let them know how you're doing because you might need to call upon them to get more time to get them to do introductions. And the more you can basically leverage your existing LP network, the better. Andreas, anything to add? 
it sounds so simple, but you really have to force yourself to think it all the way through. And we came a, we came to where we are today with that. Andreas, while I have you, what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned uh, since starting Ugly.com? I think I've been used to selling B2B and now at least towards the LP, some of the things that I've learned in sales in general, now we're selling that we can take care of your money <laughs> and that we can return a nice addition on, on top of what we what we got from you. And I think just that how big a part trust plays in in that and how little I mean, yeah, just how much, how much trust, but I don't know if that's counterintuitive. I don't, I don't, I just, if to me, I hate to say it was counterintuitive, but I mean, in all honesty, again, I think actually it was counterintuitive to me that trust is like 90% of it. Rune, anything to add? I don't, I honestly don't uh, know what the most counterintuitive thing I've learned is, but I've learned so many things. So I will say that if there are any first-time fund managers in Spain out there who is looking to get an advice or two or just hear about some of the pitfalls that we almost went into, give us a shout out and I'll be more than happy to to uh, jump on a short call. Thank you so much for giving that message to our audience. I'm sure that will be quite a few that if they don't move on it, then, uh, then we'll likely think they should and then never get it done because that's how human psyche is. <laughs> so do reach out to Rune and Andreas. They're awesome guys. And I think that what you heard in this episode also uh, is a testament to uh, how much of a learning journey they've been on. Thanks a million guys for joining us. You're amazing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. 